Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, with all that we are, we want to trust you. Speak to any hearts here tonight that are withholding ourselves from you in any way. And take these gifts just as a token of our desire that all that we are should be laid at the feet of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And as we turn to your word now, we ask that these ancient words that seem so dark and fearful would actually illuminate our path for the way ahead in Christ. Amen. So do please find uh, Isaiah chapter 24. don't know if you noticed, it's uh, fairly gloomy. The end is in sight. Uh, we'll finish uh, with uh, uh, all kinds of uh, joy and wonder and general fluffiness um, uh, with Simon Barnes in a couple of weeks. Um, it's an obvious uh, preacher for the task. Um, uh, yeah, that's right. Um, uh, but, but the gloom is still with us. Um, Isaiah 24. Um, and I was trying to think, what's, what's, this, what's this feel like? I, a, a few months ago, well, it must have been the winter, I suppose, or going into the, the winter, certainly the autumn, um, I, had, uh, I had to see some people uh, way out beyond um, Horsford St. Faith's. Um, it was a pleasant enough evening, and so I thought, okay, well, I'll take some exercise, and I went on the bike. Um, now, there aren't many streetlights well beyond Horsford St. Faith's, if you're on the uh, smaller roads. Sorry? It's not Horsford. Yes, thank you. I get Horsford and Horsham. So thank you, Horsham St. Faith's. Thank you. Uh, can, you can we just rewind the tape on that bit? And, <laughs> and uh, uh, it seemed like a good idea to cycle out that way. Um, but my bike light, it turned out, wasn't very strong for the way back. And it was, a pretty, it was one of the times where I've come closest to going into a ditch when I should have been on the road. And every now and then, in the darkness, you'd, you'd see fur, nearer or further just the flash of a, of a car headlight, um, just suggesting that there might be civilization that way. Um, and the feel, it seems to me, of Isaiah chapter 24 is you get the occasional light flickering in the darkness, and you need to pay attention to the light. It's not only a story of the darkness. If you don't pay attention to the light that you get, you really will be in trouble. Uh, Isaiah, these chapters 24 through to 27, it's like those chapters, say, in Mark's Gospel, or to some extent in in the book of Revelation. Um, Like an apocalypse, it's an unveiling of how things really are behind the scenes. It is. This is the real mystery. And we're getting to see behind it. It's not unrelieved gloom, but it is pretty gloomy. But if the Christ we know as king on this Sunday is the judge, then we're going to have confidence in his judgments when it seems that wickedness triumphs around us. Well, let's begin uh, with verses 1 to 2. In our day, people very often ask for equality. 
They demand equal rights. And verses 1 and 2 say, you're going to get equal rights. It's going to be exactly the same for priests, for people, for mistress and maid, for borrower, for lender, for debtor, for creditor. Everyone's going to be equal. You're all equally universally liable to terrible judgment. It's not the equal rights we ask for, but that's the equal rights that we get in God's eyes. The right to be judged. It's a universal condemnation because just, uh, uh, I could have taken it from other points, but just in this chapter, in verse 20, uh, we're told it's uh, a universal rebellion. Universal rebellion, everyone's equal in rebellion, so everyone's equal in judgment. And it's going to be any moment. That's the feel, the verse 1, where it says, see, the Lord is going to, the feel of it is about to. And it's always the case that God is about to enter into judgment. The sovereignty of God, is, which is hidden now, the sense that God is in charge, which is hidden now, is always about to become obvious. All those, and you probably know at least some of them, who say, uh, especially perhaps if we're talking to them about God, if only God would act, well, they will find he will. But it won't be the acting that they are hoping for when they say, if only God will act, would act. God will act. And the, the rest of the chapter opens up the kind of picture of what is going to be going on. So firstly, verses 4 to 6, there is this terrible drought. The world itself withers. Uh, there's, uh, and, and later on, when we, th- this is drought, later on we're going to come to flood, but this picture with drought, it's actually about the planet. It's the earth itself. Uh, it withers, public life uh, decays, the exalted of the earth languish, they're not, they're, there's nothing to do, it, 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 there's, uh, there's no governance to exercise because the whole thing is just collapsing. The earth itself is defiled, verse 5. Well, uh, what an extraordinary prophecy that is, that a prophet in the time of Isaiah, eight centuries or so before the time of Jesus Christ, could look to a time when we ourselves know our capacity to defile our planet itself. The earth itself is defiled and polluted because we've disobeyed the laws of God, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Covenant, important word, lights going on for a moment. Verse 5, covenant. Which covenant? Well, it could be the covenant with David, but it isn't. It could be the covenant with Moses. Normally, references to covenant in Isaiah, that's probably what it is. But the, the, the number of times this is talking about earth and some of the references that come through suggests that this is absolutely fundamental and basic. This covenant that's been broken now is the covenant that God made with Noah. Do you remember the the, the rainbow? It's never going to be like this again. I will not enter into judgment. There will be seed time and harvest. I will never wipe out everyone again. 
but nonetheless you have broken that everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Well, we know what that looks like, don't we, in our time? Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. Well, here we are in Christian Aid Week, recognizing as Christian Aid and Tear Fund and other agencies run the IF campaign, that there is enough food in our world if we sort ourselves out. We know that we have the solution to global warming if we take it. We have the resources, but we won't because we don't think they will. We won't put ourselves at disadvantage unless we are sure that they're going to be under an equal disadvantage. So we'll just carry on making the emissions and making the world warmer. The only uh, global warming I uh, heard this week is that apparently all the ducks uh, are having to breed further north than they used to. All the waterfowl used to come down to the UK from the Arctic uh, aren't doing it anymore. Uh, Not in numbers. Uh, The world is burning up. And some of that, probably, not necessarily all of it, but some of it, probably, is our fault. Pleasure has gone, verses 7 through to 12. The new wine, the music, the harp. Uh, even, and don't get many references to beer uh, in, uh, in, in the Bible. You often get wine, but this is one of the few references to beer. So pay attention. Um, pleasure has gone. And the, the uh, pleasure is communal. We take our pleasures together. But it's the ruined city now, the center of of our common life, that is ruined. And it's another little kind of hint, because this is no no longer a specific city. Earlier chapters, you may have been with us, you may not. When it talked about city, sometimes you felt, well, this was Jerusalem or a particular other city. No, this is just the city as such. And that also starts to take us back to Genesis, and we think of what was the city? It was Babel. The city that was established when humankind came together to build for themselves a little, not a little, but a great big city that would reach up to the heavens and kind of reach God for them. No, no. God confused it then, And judgment is coming now on that kind of attempt of humankind to get together and with merriment and common pleasures to to do uh, together what actually we need to be accountable for doing, first of all, on our own, a worship of God. But, verse 12, the city is left in ruins, its gate is battered to pieces, so there's been invasion. So will it be on, an earth, on the earth and among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten or as when gleanings are left for the grape harvest. And a little light came on in the darkness. You beat an olive tree when all the olives have actually fallen off and fallen these days with they'd fall into nets. But you beat it when there's still a few you could get. Gleanings are what's left when the the main pickers have been through the grape harvest, but they've left a few. And the law of Israel said when there's a few things left, it might be 
corn, it might be wheat, it might be grapes. You don't go back over it a second time, but you leave it for those others. So there are gleanings left. There's a few olives left on the tree. And a little light has gone on. It's not unrelieved gloom. There's a little something there about remnant. There will still be some left. And they are happy. Verse 14. They raise their voices. They shout for joy. From the west, they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. This is going to be big. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the highlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth, we hear singing, glory to the righteous one. It's going to be a huge gathering. But it is still afar off. And the prophet is concerned, nonetheless, for the majority. But I said, I waste away, I waste away, woe to me. Woe to me, little echoes going on. It's the language that Isaiah used when he first encountered the Lord in the temple. He sees the glory of the Lord high and lifted up, but I said, woe to me, for I am ruined. For I have seen the Lord, the God of hosts. And that same reaction is taking hold of him. And for some of the same reasons. He said, woe to me because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And verse, four, uh, verse 16 says, the treacherous betray. With treachery, the treacherous betray. Lips, speech, promises. It's all failing. No one's word is to be trusted. It's the same things going on in verse 24. It's like a cycle that has just got deeper. In in chapter 6, God told Isaiah, this is what it's going to be like. And now in chapter 24, he's, he's actually experiencing how it is. Nonetheless, it's a reminder, because of that echo, that just like, as in chapter 6, the glory of the Lord was the point, same here, the glory of the Lord is the point. You know it's treachery, because it's not meant to be like that. It's meant to be the opposite. We're meant to live in a world, not of rebellion, but of obedience that would have been a beautiful thing in itself. I remember one of the strongest reactions, the kind of strongest murmurs I've ever had in a church um, happened a couple of years ago to our harvest service where I simply took, and we had the usual kind of amazing displays of flowers that Maisie and her team had put together, and I took a a sunflower. I guess most of you weren't there because it was the morning. And I, I I mean, sunflowers, you know, know, all the maths of the universe is tied up in a sunflower, and extraordinary things. And I just ripped it. And you could hear people going, (gasps) because something beautiful had just been destroyed in front of them. But we do it every day. And we don't go, (gasps) when that happens. Something beautiful, a life of a people in obedience under their God, is destroyed day after day after day by rebellion. And then, if we've been with uh, drought up to now, we get the flood coming uh, in uh, verses what the, towards the end of uh, 18 and then for the next few verses after that. The floodgates of the heavens are opened and the foundations of the earth shake. You get flood and earthquake. 
There's no merriment in wine or beer, but the earth reels like a drunkard and sways like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls never to rise again. This is kind of moving into not just, I'm I'm really upset with you and bad things are going to happen, but this is, he's reaching down now into the kind of the deep underbelly of the existing echoes of God's word to say, like, like in Genesis, everything was promised, it's actually falling apart now. It is so fundamental, what you have, the rebellion in which you have been involved, that the same kind of judgment has to be considered. It's not total. There are the olives just left. There are the grapes just left. But it's very, very bad. It's as bad as it's ever going to be. The floodgates are opened. In that day, the Lord will punish, verse 21, uh, will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They'll be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. Now, there's three kind of little, I don't know whether they're moments, they're points perhaps, to register as we move towards the end of the, the chapter. The first thing is the scale, and to register that creation itself is judged. The powers in the heavens above are judged. The kings on the earth below, prisoners uh, in the dungeon. Uh, Every every, uh, dimension of existence is coming under judgment. The prisoners, maybe they were those who could say, well, I had no choice in life. That's the way the chips fell for me. But the kings can't say that. The kings have got all the authority. They can, they can do, as Isaiah would have thought, pretty much exactly what they want. And they have done what they wanted. They cannot turn around and say, I had no choice. And, and the punishment that happens in, the, in that way is cosmic in its scale. The moon's going to be abashed, verse 23. The sun is going to be ashamed. Creation itself falls under the judgment of God. Why? Because God wants something better. And you can go to St. Paul in Romans in chapter 7 and 8 and you can hear the groaning of creation because it's waiting for something better. The only reason that God will be so appallingly judgmental with the creation is because something better's on its way. That will come in a couple of weeks. But here, it is terrible. Creation itself is judged. Now, one of the things I want to say here is that Christ is the judge, which may sound like an odd thing to say from Isaiah. Well, we know that this scale has not quite come to pass. There was a dreadful judgment when they were taken off to Babylon, named after Babel. But this scale, this cosmic scale, has not yet come to pass. Punishment is delayed. We do not yet see the earth in this way. And now we know why, as Isaiah did not, because Christ is on his throne. Nothing that happens, even including rebellion, happens except by his permission 
because he is waiting according to what he tells us. And then the end will come. This is the age in which the good news of Jesus is to go to the furthest ends of the earth, to every people and group, and then the end will come. But we know, if we know the Jesus Christ, who was raised in Nazareth, taught in Galilee and Jerusalem, was crucified, three days later rose, and then ascended to the Father's side. If we know that Jesus Christ, then we know the one who will hold the wicked to account. And these are just some of the local, some of the, uh, they're not local, some of the stories. We've seen hundreds, maybe it's over a thousand now, I I don't know, uh, die when a a sweatshop factory collapses. Why was it prone to collapse? Because uh, the building regs hadn't been obeyed. It's a corrupt environment. Africa loses twice as much in corruption as it is given in aid. When a seemingly nice neighbor in Ohio turns out to be an appalling sexual predator, how can we not call out, how long, O Lord, When these things are beyond our power to change, as little old me and you, should we just walk away? Or should we not long for justice and pray for truth to reign and be on our knees and singing it and praying it and being out on the streets with Christian aid, whatever it takes, as far as we can make a difference? I had a friend who was... um, I still have him as a friend. Um, he was a senior vice president for American Express. And he was asked um, to, uh, by one of uh, Margaret Thatcher's Christian advisors, actually, um, he was asked to go to Romania and help in a project of establishing a business school in Aradia in uh, Romania. Because Romania, as it was becoming loosened from its previous communist past, there was a a universal expectation in the country that everybody was corrupt, and actually nearly everybody was. And one of the churches, big Baptist churches in Romania, had had this vision for generating, for creating a, a business school on Christian lines, so that there would be a generation that could be trusted in that country. And he went and he served there as the head of the school for about 12 years, and there is in Romania now, and it's, it's, it's loosened up enough that people are coming and going a lot more. But that was a key moment, and people from that business school in Aradia were trusted not to be corrupt. Imagine what it's like if every one of your dealings that you're going into the world with in the next few days, you expected to be corrupt. You would be desperate for judgment to come. Maybe it would be Africa. Maybe it would be Bangladesh. But, of course, it isn't only far away. I keep coming back to this story because it's a story for me from the underbelly of English life. Some of you will know the Jafari family, Razor and Golbis and their daughter, Satin. They are stuck in Coventry, waiting for the asylum service to notice them, basically. They've been parked and instead of, every, although if everything's run under the official banner of the Home Office, actually everything they come in contact with is a contracted service. So they never feel they're actually dealing with the same people. 
and in our own country, there are people who are just abandoned by our system. Someone today, this morning in church, was talking about uh, someone he knows who was released from a mental hospital uh, in the last couple of weeks, and now he enjoys the doubtful benefit of being cared for in the community. What that means is he's on the streets, and everybody treats him as a threat, because he is a threat. It's not fair. If our own circumstances mean we aren't longing for justice, then something has gone wrong. And finally, judgment reveals our calling. And perhaps more than anything else, this is where this passage bites for us. Any passage of Scripture, and therefore any sermon, ought to have in it something of the good news of Jesus. This is the season when we remember all, after all, that Jesus died, rose, and ascended. It's him we honor, him we praise. But good news is not the same, for all my teasing about a couple of weeks, as nice news or fluffy news. Maybe life has been hard for some of us this week. And this is the right place to be, because brothers and sisters will love and pray for you. And light is flickering on in this chapter. Because at the very end, we've talked about the olives and the grapes, but at the very end, the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And before its elders, gloriously, we will know his reign as glorious. But the judgment of Christ reminds us of what we otherwise might forget. And that's sometimes what news does. We might slip into thinking that God has been good to us in Christ because we deserved it, or because he felt a bit sorry for us. And we forget that the judgment comes in fact because Christ came and rose and will come again for one purpose, and that is the sake of God's own glory. The restoration of a creation that has gone appallingly wrong. The opportunity for a creation to be renewed, and yes, us as part of it. That is good news that defines our calling tonight and tomorrow and the day after. As Paul says in Corinthians, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. If God has been good to us, it is so that we might say to the world, look at yourselves. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Turn to the one who alone can save. Just like they said in the days of Noah. Only the most self-centered of us could read that chapter and think, yeah, it's great, yeah, Jesus died for me, I'm really lucky. not the way it is, not quite the way it is. Listen to this chapter, and we go into our days facing a calling from God, because the truth of it is better put like this, it was all for me, but so that I might be all for others.